Good morning. It is uh, such a delight to be back here with you folks. Unfortunately for uh, the health for Pastor Zach, but I understand he is doing much better and will be back with you very, very soon, which makes me very, very happy. I also want to give a warm welcome all to our watching online at this point. I'll do the same as I did last week, the Carol Burnett, the tug of the uh, earlobe. If you don't know what that means, look it up. It's a sincere uh, gesture from me to uh, you who are watching online this morning. I really enjoyed last week uh, the music. Uh, that kind of caught me off guard, you know, the Welcome Back Cotter. But that was, that was really good. That's, uh, that was cool. Really, really enjoyed that. In the Scriptures this morning, we'll be in the book of Philippians once again, and we're just going to kind of continue on from last week. Uh, where we looked at verses 3 through 8, and we'll be examining verses 9 through 11, the joy that comes through prayer. There's a lot of prayers in the Scripture, and sometimes we read the Scripture and fail to capture that these are literal prayers, such as what uh, Tony uh, read for us earlier. One example, and I often use this at a uh, funeral service to remind uh, those that are there of the eternality of God, but also the frailty of man. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, just three verses to capture it, but this was a prayer by Moses in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God." And then he goes on to say, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Great, great prayer. Another great prayer is in the book of Nehemiah, and it's a prayer of confession. Every time I read this, I'm reminded that as a leader, we are to absorb sins that even we may have not participated in. Listen to this. This is the mark of a great leader. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, you see he included himself, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. And then one final example of prayer that comes also from the book of Ephesians. It's uh, very similar to the one that uh, Tony read, and it is really closely similar to the prayer that we'll read in just a moment from Philippians. It comes from the first chapter of Paul's letter to Ephesus. He said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power 
toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. Now, I could go on with a number of other examples, but I think that helps prepare the way for this great prayer that we find in the letter to the church of Philippi. I would like for you to please stand with me at this time, and we're going to do the prayer time just a wee bit different. Typically, when we're in church, we will close our eyes when we pray. Uh, Examples of when we should not close our eyes is when we're praying as we drive. Uh, I typically don't close my eyes when I'm praying on the bicycle. And there are a number of times, maybe at work, where we can pray without closing our eyes. So uh, keep your eyes open. If you want to uh, use the screen, you can do that, or uh, the bulletin insert will also have these words. There's a lot of songs that we sing that are prayer. And uh, I'm going to read the first verse of this song. And then I'm going to read Paul's words in verses 9 through 11. And then I'm going to ask you to join me after the reading of God's Word, very similar to how we might do the Lord's Prayer. Just do it in unison. Keep your eyes open. You can look at the screen or the notes. So let me read for you the first stanza of this very, very special song that uh, I loved hearing uh, here at this place, only will not sing it. Speak. O Lord, as we come to you, to receive the food of your holy word, take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. The words of Scripture And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Would you join with me as we read this final stanza? Speak, O Lord and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity, and by grace will stand on your promises, and by faith will walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've entitled the series that I've been working on over the past several months, Speakable Joy. Uh, not unspeakable, but speakable joy. Uh, Nineteen different times Paul references rejoice or joy in the epistle to the church of Philippi. Now, why was he full of joy, and why would he pray the prayer for them as he did? Well, the uh, answer for that is the gospel. Uh, I'm going to read just verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel 
from the first day until now. Six different times just in chapter 1 and nine times in the epistle to the church of Philippi, Paul references the gospel. You know, it is the main thing. It is the common union that brings us together for a gathering like this. It's the common union that brings us together as a church body. It's the common union that helps us serve missionaries and parachurch organizations around the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice with me in verse 7 that he uses the phrase, partakers with me of grace. That's pretty much saying the same thing. And Paul explains here that you have stuck with me in my imprisonment, you have remained with me in the defense of the gospel, and you have also remained with me in the confirmation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was uh, sharing with uh, Brian Dunn earlier, and and, I was sharing with him my conversation with Pastor Zach back in the summer when he was here candidating. And one thing that uh, Pastor Zach and I have in common is that we like to approach a sermon at the very beginning by just looking at the text and developing an outline. Uh, It's the the structure. It's the skeleton. And once you have the skeleton, then I will go to commentaries and other sources to put the meat on that skeleton. So let me share with you the skeleton, so to speak, or outline for the message today. The first part of verse 9 prayer is personal. From verse 9b to 10, prayer is particular. And thirdly, in verse 11, prayer has a purpose. I want to share with you a story. It's about Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, Most people have heard of Lawrence of Arabia from the movie that was made in 1962. Interesting character. He was born in 1888, and uh, he was born to uh, an unwed mother, and she gave to him the last name Lawrence, so it was a borrowed name, because her name was Jenner. And his first name was Thomas, and his middle name was Edward, but most people knew him as Lawrence of Arabia, and he served in uh, that region of the country, or the world, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, He was an archaeologist, he was a military leader, And he was also a writer, and uh, he was very famous uh, during his time. Now, Lawrence of Arabia uh, died a very untimely death. How many in here are motorcyclists? I know a few, but raise your hand if you're a motorcyclist, okay? One thing that you can be thankful for, and I hope that you follow suit in what happened after his death... uh, Lawrence of Arabia actually was a connoisseur of motorcycles. He had uh, seven, and I don't know the name of the the brand of the motorcycle, but in that day, he had seven, uh, what you might say, the Rolls Royces of motorcycles. And that's how he died. He died at age 46, uh, coming up over a rise, coming down to a dip, and there were some kids in the road. He swerved to miss and ended up wrecking. And he died six days later of a head injury. The doctor who attended him had seen so many die from head injuries that he began the research for what now should be required everywhere is to wear a helmet when you ride the motorcycle. So that connects with uh, 
Lawrence of Arabia. Now, here's the story. Lawrence of Arabia uh, worked in a region where he was often uh, around Bedouins. Now, that's just a name for nomads, and they would pitch tents out in the desert and just move from place to place. And he thought it would be a wonderful idea to take these Bedouins on a trip back to his homeland in England. So that's what he did. Well, he needed a place to house them. Now, we were able to stay in the posh six-star bed and breakfast at the Vitt Mansion, as he likes to call it. And, and it is good. I mean, it, I gave it six stars. Uh, he does a mean breakfast. I mean, it's just, it's really, really, really good. Well, Lawrence took these Bedouin and put them in a, a very, very nice um, hotel in London, England. Well, they saw something that they had never seen before, and that was faucets. And they were shown what these faucets would do, and if you turned the handle this way, water would come out of it, and if you turned the handle this way, water would stop. And they were fascinated with that, and they just were kind of like kids playing with this. They'd never seen anything like it, that you could turn this handle and water would come out and then water would stop. Well, then they go back to Arabia, and that's where the story ends, and I'll finish the story at the end of the message. See, I do that to keep you here, you know, because people will walk out on you, you know, but this will hook you to, to hang in there. Prayer that is personal, and it is my prayer he begins, my prayer. You know, there's a lot of things in life that we can find a substitute for us. For example, during the Civil War, you could pay $300, which would be the equivalent of 5000 a day. You could pay $300 for somebody to go into the war in your stead. John D. Rockefeller did that. Uh, Grover Cleveland uh, uh, later a president did that. Ghostwriters. Uh, a lot of the books we read are not written by the people that have the name on the book. Uh, I don't want to spoil those that like Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, but they were written by ghostwriters. Uh, JFK wrote two books not actually written by him, and they paid good money for that. Some get... Uh, thousands and thousands of dollars for writing those books. Uh, some people choose to use a surrogate mother. Now, this gets really costly. The average is ninety dollars to $130,000 for someone else to bear a child uh, for you. And a last example of that is proxy voting. You can actually get a delegate to vote in your place. I've even heard in some countries that you can be dead and have somebody vote for you. Now, probably not our country, probably somewhere else, but I've heard that that happens. Well, prayer, you can ask people to pray for you, but you cannot have a substitute do your praying. It is my prayer. In verse 4, every prayer of mine. In verse 7, I hold you in my heart. 
And then he says, I yearn for you with all the affection. The word here is the very bowels of my being. I hold you in my heart. Now, I want to say something here and and confess that I'm just as guilty. In fact, I just said it for a second time. We overwork the word just. And one of the the worst things that we can do is say, well, all I can do is just pray. Well, we should say, it's all I can do. It's, It's the most wonderful thing that we can do is to pray for other people, to have that kind of concern. Now, an example of this is in the Old Testament, the high priest. The high priest represented the whole nation. And on the screen, you will see a picture of what a high priest would look like. And on his chest, he carried something called the ephod. And on the ephod, there were 12 stones. And these stones were very precious, like jasper and emerald. And each of these stones represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were placed there near to his heart to represent him caring for the people. Listen to this verse that comes from Exodus 28, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place, now listen to this, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. What I gather from this is that as a pastor, we need to pray for the people. And in a moment, we'll look at exactly what we're to pray for. As a church leader, as an elder, as a deacon, should be praying for the people. As a parent, to pray for your children and your grandchildren. As a teacher, as somebody that works in the secular field, to make it your prayer for others that they might grow in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The high priest held this whole nation so close to his heart that it caused him to remember them in prayer when he entered into the holy place. The second thing that we note in this prayer is that this prayer is very particular. Now again, this is something that we find ourselves being guilty of from time to time, generic prayers. And by the way, uh, a very special thanks for Tony actually uh, naming the leaders. And obviously, we could be here all day if we listed all the needs that each of those have. But that was nice to uh, actually hear the names of our leaders in our nation. But if, when we pray a very generic prayer, such as, Lord, bless the missionaries, That's kind of a blanket statement. It doesn't get into the particulars. But if we were to pray, Lord, help missionary Andy as he translates the Amharic language so the people in Ethiopia can understand the gospel, that's a specific prayer, a particular prayer. Another example of this is, in in fact, it's uh, one of our songs that we love to sing. It's an example of a prayer, God bless America. Well, when we literally pray, God bless America, maybe what we should do, and and again, it was referenced 
uh, somewhat in in the prayer this morning, but a particular prayer would be, Lord, touch the hearts of those on the Supreme Court to reverse Roe v. Wade to protect those that are unborn. Another example would be, we might pray, Lord, be with our pastor. But a particular prayer would be, Father, help Pastor Zach as he examines how best to reach evangelistically the community of West Liberty. Paul was into particular, specific prayers. And there's two major items that he prayed for on their behalf. First of all, he prayed that they might be loving in abundance. And second, that they would be living for approval. The word love attached with one another occurs 14 times in the New Testament. The very last series that I preached here was on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is very, very important as it relates to one another. You might remember the very last words of chapter 12, and remember that when the New Testament was written, in fact, the whole Bible was written, there were no chapters, no verses. These were added later. The more excellent way is actually the way of love. It overcomes all obstacles. The value, the virtues, and the victory of love comes from God above. And he's praying here that their love may abound more and more. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we read this. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love poured into our hearts makes all the difference. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. He repeats this over and over, and here in the text, he's actually praying that their love may be one that is in abundance. Now, let's stop for a moment and talk about love. Love can be emotional. Love can be very empathetic. Uh, Even here this morning, uh, I've exchanged hugs with people. That's a, a way of showing love. The kind of love that Paul is talking about here rises above just mere emotions. And I don't want to, for any reason at all to minimize the emotional aspect. It should be there, but it needs to follow what he says right here, the knowledge and discernment. I like to refer to this as uh, the banks of a river. You know, the banks of a river contain the water. About a year and a half ago, the banks didn't contain the water and kind of came into this facility. But under normal circumstances, those banks contain the water as it flows downstream. And Paul here gives to us the banks of the river of love, and the first one is knowledge. Knowledge is what we do. It's the acquisition of facts. We might say this is the orthodoxy. This is what we know. This is what we have scripturally and what we ought to be doing. 
In first or second Peter, excuse me, Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And Peter ends his epistle by saying that we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Knowledge is important. In other words, love that is just mere mush or emotions without knowledge is not very helpful. It's one bank of the river of love. But when you connect that with the second aspect, the bank of discernment, this is more the orthopraxy, how and when we do something, the application of facts. The Greek word here for, uh, in, our, in our text in verse 9, that it may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is acceptable, is our word for aesthetics. It's what is pleasing in appearance. It's what's acceptable. Or maybe we should say what is ethically or moral and appropriate for a particular time. It's interesting that this same word is used 22 times in what we call the Septuagint. There was a group of 70 scholars who took the Old Testament Hebrew and Aramaic and translated it into the Greek language. That's called the Septuagint. You might read from time to time the LXX, and that's what it's referring to. 22 times this word that we would say aesthetics is used in the book of Proverbs for practical insights. In other words, this is a piece of knowledge that is so beautiful, so appropriate, so fitting that it is aesthetic. The author of Hebrews gives this wonderful piece of information for us to grow and to develop in our lives. He says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Paul's prayer here is for them to love in more abundance. But it's the kind of love that flows from the knowledge of the Scriptures, the acquisition of facts, but it also is contained by the application of those facts, how we approach it. Just a a story that a pastor shared with me from his time in the greater New York City. There was a a gentleman in the church that had uh, need for some discipline. Uh, So he took two of the church leaders with him, but he purposely took two men from his church to address the sin in this individual's life, purposely picked one who knew the Word of God so well that he could just spit off, and and sure enough, when they got there, he was firing away Scripture verses at this guy. The other guy was one who had the, the feeling and the heart, and so while one was giving out the Word, the other guy was in tears pleading, please repent. And the beauty of those two together brought this man to repentance. But we're also to be living for approval. 
not just loving in abundance, but living for approval. The word here that is used in verse 10 to approve is used for metals, to assay uh, gold and its purity. The word for sincere is without wax. Uh, When uh, products would be sold on the market, it was often in the transport of these vessels that pottery would crack. And so they would oftentimes take beeswax and fill in the crack and then try to sell it. So people who were able to rise above that and not buy something that was faulty would hold that up to the light and it would shine through that crack. To be without wax is what he's saying here. To be pure. To be one that is innocent in the sight of the Lord. I really like, and and I'll have to tell you, uh, when I was studying through the book of Philippians and I came to chapter 4, it came at a very good time in my life as a reminder, and I just want to share this with you. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any thing worthy of praise, think about these things. You know, it's just so easy, even in thinking, which sometimes leads to action, that we're not focused on the right thing. And Paul reminds them that they are to be loving in abundance and living for the approval of God. Why? Notice with me in verse 10, for the day of Christ. Now notice in verse 6, he refers to the day of Jesus Christ. Turn over to chapter 2 and verse 16 holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ. What is he referring to? Three different times in this short epistle, he refers to the day of Christ. Well, broadly speaking, it's speaking of the return of Christ and all the events of the end times that will eventually lead him being ruler and king of of the world. We call that the millennial kingdom. But one segment of this applies to us, and it's what we call the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let me just uh, share very quickly, and this will be a way to get the gospel message in for today. There's two major judgments that every single person in this room and every person that might be listening to this message, every one of us are going to face one or the other of these two judgments. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is for Christians only. Now, to be a Christian, you have to place your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and allow that faith to bring justification to your heart. You don't do anything. You don't say anything. You don't be in a certain spot. You don't get baptized. It's by faith alone, by grace alone, for God's glory alone. And we will face the judgment seat of Christ. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, the other is for all people who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's called the great white throne judgment. You'll find that in the book of Revelation chapter 20. 
And when you've come to that throne, it's over. Uh, let, me, let me just share with you uh, a sneak look into chapter 2 where it talks about the exaltation of Jesus so that at the name, verse 10, of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is not, it is not a matter of if all people will bow the knee to Christ, it's when they will do it. If we do it in this life and trust Him as Savior and Lord, we go to the judgment seat of Christ, and I'll, I'll explain what that entails in just a moment. But if we do not do that, you will face the great white throne judgment, and at that point, you will bow the knee. All people, whether in this life or later, will have to do it. It's a matter of when, not if. Now, let's go back to the judgment seat of Christ. I pray that all who are here, those who are watching from home, have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. We will face our Savior at what is called the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ. And that is referenced here three times in this little epistle. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be become manifest for the day. The day of Christ will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So the judgment seat of Christ is about rewards whereas the great white throne judgment is about being cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Then he says this, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, loss of reward, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So in this life, all that we do, whether it's loving others or living for this approval, everything, our thoughts, our actions, our deeds, will come before the judgment seat of Christ, and either we'll find reward or we'll find loss of reward. It does not affect our eternal destiny. It does affect our eternal reward in heaven. The last and final thing, and I want to wrap this passage up with verse 11. Prayer is purposeful. Two purposes. Number one, to bear fruit for God. And number two, to bring glory to God. Notice here in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, what he's referring to here is what we call practical righteousness, not positional righteousness. Positional righteousness comes when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Practical righteousness is how we live for Him after coming to Christ for salvation. He's praying for them for the purpose that their lives might be filled with fruit 
This is exactly what Jesus said in John 15. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Remember a couple years ago, and we had a little table here, and I preached a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, we we got this bowl, and it had the fruit around the bowl. And then uh, I'm looking around for uh, Julie. Julie over here, she did like, I I don't know. uh, This is men in a good way, very good way. So just want to share that. Okay, this sets at our home now on the on the kitchen table. And it's a reminder. We walk by it all the time. And, every, you know, I, I'll look at it. And I'm like, eh, I'm not doing so hot in that one. I'm, I need some help in this one. Kind of reminder to, to have all these things. Well, when our grandkids come to the house, if we think of it, we move it somewhere else because they might break the bowl. But if we don't remember to move it, they love to take out all the fruit. Now, there's only nine fruit of the Spirit. But the package that I came up with in order to fill it had probably 25 pieces of fruit. So I asked Julie to uh, draw the name of the fruit on there, and so those are on the top. So the grandkids come over, and they go through it, and I mean, it's all jumbled up, so then Grandpa's got to go in there and, you know, arrange them again so that you can see what the, what the letters are, and then underneath is all these other. Maybe Julie did this because I needed to find more joy. There's, there's two joys. Yeah, there's two joys in there. But, but here's the good part. One of the joys, and it's the one I keep on top, one of the joys is on the lemon. Okay, so you've, <laughs> so you've heard the, the thing about, you know, you know, when you get lemons in life, make some lemonade. I thought, that, that's pretty good. You know, when life gives you a lemon, still have joy, because that's what Paul did. And so I just thought I would share that, because two of the items that Paul stresses, joy and love, are right at the beginning. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So uh, that message that I gave continues to preach messages even to us as a reminder uh, for him. Bringing glory to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked this question. Now, we grew, uh, we, we minister, I should say, in uh, Christian Reform country. Uh, when we went to uh, McMain, uh, Michigan, our church was a non-denominational church, very Baptistic, but we basically were a non-denominational church in a community that was virtually 90% Christian Reform. And I, I love the people. I mean, they were, they were great. And one of the things that they do that we don't do in most non-denominational churches, Baptist churches, Bible churches, is go through catechism, but they do. And one of the things in the shorter catechism is what is the chief end of man? And, of course, they study these questions, and in order to get confirmation, you have to answer these questions exactly as they are given. And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, which is exactly what Jesus said. 
in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's what was read by Tony earlier in Paul's prayer in chapter 3. The ultimate goal of our lives is to give glory to Him. I've always loved the crescendo ending of Romans 11. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 is kind of an interlude. What about Israel? And he answers the question about what, what happens with Israel in this wonderful salvation, this systematic theology of chapters 1 through 8. And he comes to the very end of chapter 11 and describing all that God has in store and his plans, his counsel. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever Amen. You know what follows immediately after that? Present your bodies a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God for His glory alone. Another prayer that's in the Bible is King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was faced with an enemy, the Syrians, that were ready to attack his people. I've always loved the description here, and I looked up this word, and it literally means just to lay it open, to stretch it out. But in most translations, it says that Hezekiah went to the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. In other words, he just didn't hide anything. He just laid it before the Lord. And when he ended the prayer, he said this, So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, the enemy, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. He didn't use the word glory, but he's saying the same thing. That our lives might be lived to bear fruit, but also to bring glory to God. This is the prayer of Epaphras in Colossians 4.12. He prayed struggling, wrestling, grappling for the hearts of people he cared for. And his prayer was that they be mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. Now, remember way back a long time ago when we talked about Lawrence of Arabia? I don't think very many people walked out, so you get to hear the rest of the story. When Lawrence of Arabia got back to the Middle East with his Bedouins, he was shocked at what the Bedouins had done. They were so amazed that you could just turn this little knob back and forth and water would come out and water would stop, that when they opened up their bags, they had taken the faucets off and put them in their bags. And no matter what you do in turning the knob back and forth, there was no water. Why? Because it wasn't attached to the source. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. 
In summary, Paul's prayer here is that we be connected with our Father in such a way that we love people, that we live for God's approval, and that we ourselves are bringing glory to God by the fruit that we bear. And that is Paul's joyous prayer for each of us. I trust that this will challenge you and myself, that when we pray for people, that we include in our prayers the growth and maturity in Jesus Christ for His glory alone. Would you please stand as I close in prayer by reading one final stanza of Lord, speak, O Lord. The author writes, Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. Dear Father, I pray for these, your people. We can uh, do just like Paul and pray for the saints at Grace Chapel. And I pray, Father, that you might cause their hearts to abound in love. I pray that you will cause their lives to be lived in such a way that they're filled with knowledge and discernment so that they can apply what they know. And I also pray that they would live their lives individually as well as corporately so that when that day comes where we meet you face to face, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into your reward. And I pray, Father, that our lives will bear much fruit. And I pray that that fruit will in return give you glory to your name. Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you that these are words that are not mere ink on mere paper. These are the word of the Lord. May we heed them. May we be challenged by them. And may we grow by them. For Christ's sake and glory alone we pray. Amen.